God, I pray that you would send the power of your spirit to speak through me and to speak uh, to your people this morning. I pray that you would uh, make this more than uh, just uh, a human thing that we do, but that you would uh, do the miracle of, of speaking uh, to your people, your very words. I pray that you would help us to understand scripture and to understand how the Bible uh, really is a transformative book. And I pray that you would uh, enliven us again this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, You don't have to go far to see that uh, we tend to have a fascination with what happens after we die. Um, A good example of this is the incredible popularity of the book uh, Heaven is for Real that's come out uh, recently with a a movie that just came out of it too. But Heaven is for Real is this account of this young boy who had a near-death experience and and, uh, had a vision of being taken up to heaven. He tells his family what he saw. It's an incredible story and um, it just came out as a, as a movie, but the book has actually been on the top of the bestseller list, the New York Times bestseller list, basically since it came out uh, three and a half years ago. And this week is actually at the very top of the nonfiction uh, books. And I thought that was, that was interesting. And, and actually, if you look at the nonfiction paperbacks, the top two books are both near-death experiences of heaven. The first one, the top one is this one, Heaven is for Real. The, the other one is Proof of Heaven, which is another kind of vision of heaven in a near-death experience. And I was looking at that, and I think, well, well, that's interesting. What is it that fascinates us so much about these near-death experiences that, that they become the top two best-selling uh, nonfiction books uh, in our country? As I was thinking about that, I think there are at least, and there are probably lots of reasons, but I think there are at least two big impulses that we feel that draw us to these kind of accounts of a vision of heaven. Uh, the first is that we want to know that death is not the end of our existence, I remember when I was uh, in uh, middle school trying to, trying to think of what, what it would be like to, to keep living after death. I was trying to wrap my mind around the concept of, well, what does it mean that you, know, you die and then, and then what? And I was trying to think of it, and, and honestly, it would just kind of freak me out. I, I didn't know what to think, and I just wanted to kind of switch the subject and think about something else, try to busy myself doing something else. But, but we want to know what happens when we die, and these kind of visions of heaven, these near-death experiences seem to provide something of an answer to that question. But the other impulse that I think specifically Christians have is that we want to know that our hope for the future is a true hope. We want our hope for the future verified, and that these kind of uh, visions, sort of, we take them as proof that our faith is uh, sure. Now, I realize that for some of you, this is kind of a touchy subject. Some of you really love Heaven is for Real, and some of you are maybe a little bit skeptical or whatever. I actually don't want to talk about the books. Uh, the only reason I uh, bring them up is because uh, Thomas Nelson Publishers and TriStar Pictures has a, a deal with churches that if you bring up Heaven is for Real, at some point d- during 2014, you're, you're not going to get in trouble. Um, it was a joke. They don't actually have a thing. We're not getting money from Thomas Nelson Publishers. We're not getting money from TriStar Pictures. They're, they're doing quite well uh, without our help. Now, the, the real reason I bring it up, uh, even though I don't want to talk about it in particular, is because I think the impulses behind the popularity of these books is really important. And I want to talk about that. Uh, so rather than talking about the books there, I want to bring you back to the gospel to see how the good news of Jesus Christ really is the, the real answer to these two impulses that make uh, near-death experiences of heaven such popular reading material. So this is what I'm trying to say here. If you want to know that our existence does not end at death, and if you want to know that the Christian hope for the future is true, you've got to go back to what the gospel says, that Jesus Christ died for our sins that he was buried, that he rose from death on the third day, that he appeared to Peter, that he ascended to the right hand of God. That's really the more important and more powerful message. 
It's not just a vision of heaven. It's not just a near-death experience. It's the one who actually died in the real world, was buried in the tomb, and raised up, was raised up by God to new life. I mean, that is a powerful testimony in the real world. So if you really want to know that your faith is true, if you really want to know that there's hope for the future, look to the resurrection of Jesus. So that's what we're talking about this morning. This whole chapter that we've been looking at, 1 Corinthians 15, is all about the resurrection, why this is so important for your life. I'm calling this series, Why You Can't Live Without the Resurrection, because we've got to keep pushing in on this and seeing why is the resurrection so vitally important for our lives. So here's the big truth that we're focusing on today. Resurrection is the defeat of death. This is a huge thing. This is what we're pressing in on. Resurrection is the defeat of death. That's the big truth that's, that's underlying what we're saying today. Now, we're going to look at what that means from two different perspectives. First, what does that mean from our perspective that resurrection is the defeat of death? And then what does it mean from God's perspective that resurrection is the defeat of death? So uh, if you haven't turned there already, this is a good time to turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll look at verses 20 through 28 this morning. I believe it's found on page 1139 of the Pew Bibles if you want to uh, find it quickly there and you're not sure where 1 Corinthians is. So what we're saying here, resurrection is the defeat of death. So first let's look at what that means from our perspective. We're picking up the the section uh, right after a passage where Paul is exploring how bad it would be if there's no such thing as resurrection. So apparently some of the people in this church in Corinth were saying, well, there's no such thing as resurrection. But Paul's saying, well, no, but logically then you have to say that Christ wasn't raised. And if you're saying that Christ wasn't raised, then the whole message of the church, all of the apostles preaching is just worthless, which means that their faith is worthless, which means that the apostles and everyone else who's saying that Christ was raised are lying about God, which means that they're still stuck in their sins, there's no future hope, and Christians would be most pitied of all people. So if there's no resurrection, that's really bad news. But here's the cha- where he changes the argument to the positive. Verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, and then the end will come. So he's already said, things would be really bad if there's no such thing as resurrection. It'd be devastating. But the truth is that Christ was raised from death, which means that there is resurrection. And now this is not just about Jesus anymore. It's not just about his resurrection. It starts with his, and that's the important one. That's the one that we know happened. But his resurrection then breaks into your life so that the reality that came in him really matters for you. It affects a huge transformation for you. To see why, you've got to follow what Paul is saying, this contrast between Adam and Christ. Adam is the, the representative head of all humanity. So we are all in Adam in the sense that we are humans. Our identity and our destiny follow from that of Adam. And if you have trouble uh, believing that or, or knowing that it's true, just look back at the first instance of sin and the effects that still play out today. So you look back at Genesis 3, you see that Adam and Eve rebel against God because they don't trust him to, to know what's right and to do what's right. And God tells them what the consequences of their actions are. It's not that they become gods, it's that everything falls apart for them. It means that life is going to be very difficult. Their relationships are going to be very difficult. Living in the world is going to be very difficult. Making a living is going to be very difficult. And in the end, they will die. 
That's the consequences of being in Adam. So we are Adam's children, which means that we experience death. That's what he's saying here at verse 21 and verse 22. Death came through a man. In Adam all die. That's the problem. The problem is that because of us being Adam's children, we are in him. That means that we experience death. And so you know the power of death. I don't have to tell you that death is a, is a difficult thing. Every one of us has been affected in one way or another by the loss of others. This is a, a huge uh, threat to our existence. Anyone could be taken at any time. Death is the great enemy. That's the problem. What Paul says is true. Death came through this man, Adam, and we all as Adam's family die, and that's the problem. But the solution is what Jesus has done. The solution is resurrection. So he's saying the resurrection of Jesus has started something new here. So in 21, death came through a man, through Adam, but the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man, through Christ. In Adam, all die, but in Christ, all will be made alive. That means that there's a new possibility for us. It used to be that all we knew was death. We were Adam's children, so you were buried, and that was it. But there's a better man. There's a new Adam, a truer Adam, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus brings not death, but resurrection from death. Paul refers to the resurrection of Jesus as the first fruits of those who have died. This means not just that he's first chronologically, although that is true. He's the first uh, raised with a new body. So Lazarus, by the way, is different. The widow's son is different. They were more like resuscitated. They probably died again. But Jesus is the first one to have a new resurrected body, a new God's kingdom body. So he's the first chronologically. But not just that. It's also that his resurrection is the guarantee of more resurrection to come. He's the first fruits. So you get the first uh, products out of your garden, and you know that there are more to come. There are more ripening on the vine. So Jesus is the first fruits guaranteeing a good harvest to come of more resurrection. Now let's think again about those two impulses that make us, uh, that draw us to these near-death experiences of heaven. The first is that we want to know that there's something beyond death, and the other is that we as Christians want verification of our hope for the future. Let's take those in reverse order and, and see how the resurrection addresses these. If you want to know that your hope for the future is not a false hope, Jesus' resurrection is the best verification you can get. It really is. See, the problem with, with these kind of visions and near-death experiences of heaven is that they can't be verified, they can't be falsified. They're the testimony of one person, and you can have all sorts of different explanations for why that might have happened. Maybe they're true, maybe they're not, but they might be powerful, but, but we can't verify or falsify them. The best verification comes from what happened, not in a vision, but in real life. Jesus rose from death to life in the real world. This is what we have to remember. I think it's easy for us to, to think, well, well, okay, I believe in the resurrection, but it's kind of this cloudy thing. Maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. But if we really think about the actuality of this actually happened, he was actually dead, he was buried in a grave, and then he actually rose to new life, that is a huge thing. And what do you do with a resurrected Jesus? It's huge. See, I think it's easy for us to, to think, well, those were ancient people. They were really gullible. You know, there was a pre-scientific age. Maybe they just sort of believed in this, but it didn't really happen. I came across a great uh, quote this week uh, that I will read you. Uh, the discovery that dead people stay dead was not an achievement of modern science. Okay, it doesn't take a scientist, it doesn't take a, a contemporary modern person to realize that the resurrection doesn't happen. They knew it didn't happen. 
The reason Christians said that Jesus was raised is because some of them actually saw the resurrected Jesus. It's not because they were superstitious and believed that people could be raised from death. No, they saw him with their own eyes. I mean, Paul gives a whole list of people. He says, Peter saw him. The 12 saw him. This group of 500 saw him. James saw him. The apostles saw him. And then Paul himself saw him kind of later in an unusual sort of a way. He's saying, listen, we're saying there's resurrection from the dead because Jesus was raised from the dead. They saw him dead and buried. He was actually dead. And then all of a sudden, he's raised to life. The angel says, he's still alive. He's not in the tomb anymore. And they saw him with their own eyes, and, and they were able to talk to eyewitnesses. So this really happened in real life. God raised Jesus from death to life in the real world. That means the resurrection, it's the guarantee that those who are in Christ will be raised. That's what this bit about first fruits is. So if you want to know that your hope for the future is true, well, look at what happened in history. Jesus was raised from death to life. It's incredible verification. Of course it's true. Jesus was raised. But that also adds an important point when we think about the other impulse. When we, as, um, we want to know that there's something beyond death. The important point here is that our hope for the future needs to be grounded in what God actually says happens after death. So here in 1 Corinthians 15, the important part to know is that those who are in Christ will be raised from death to life in the end when he returns to restore all things. Now this might seem really obvious, and it's been the whole point of what he's been saying in 1 Corinthians 15, but at least in my experience growing up in the church, I think we tend to undervalue what's so important about the restoration of all things and the resurrection in the end. So when we die we will be in the presence of Christ. That's what Paul indicates uh, when he's talking to the Philippians. And he's saying, you know, what am I going to do? Am I going to die and be with Christ? Or am I going to remain here in the body because that would benefit you more? He says, oh, I know I'm going to remain in the body because you need me here. But he's indicating there is when you die, you are in the presence of Christ. But I think that's not enough, right? People who die and go into the presence of Christ, they're still waiting for more. The Bible indicates that what we're hoping for is the resurrection of the body. We're hoping for Christ to return and restore all things. In other words, disembodied existence is not the end goal. Yes, it's this incredible thing of being in the presence of God, and we rightly celebrate that, but I think we undervalue the fact that God is going to restore all things one day you will actually be raised from death to life like Jesus was if you are in him. See, this is important because we weren't created to live in, in a disembodied existence forever. We were created to live in, in the physical world. We were created to experience God's creation as he meant it to be experienced. That's why we're looking forward to God's new creation, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, this new world that God has created. When we finally get to experience the created order as God intended it to be, not a physical world marked by pain and suffering and death like we experience it now and anger and lies and war and all this, but instead a physical created new creation world that is marked by God's perfect provision and is marked by peace completely. If all there is to the future is sort of an ethereal disembodied existence, that means that creation is a failure. But you were created for more than that. We are physical beings created for a physical world and that's why our hope is in the fact that he's going to restore all things in the end. So think about it this way. Uh, when I was in junior high, I used to really love uh, snow machines. You guys call them snowmobiles, I think, here. Um, I can't help it. Snow machines is what I grew up calling them, so I'm going to call them that. But I bought an old used one when I was in junior high, and I rode it all around behind my house. Uh, trails, uh, fields, lakes, all sorts of stuff. 
Uh, but my dad had a friend who was uh, a Skidoo dealer. He sold brand new uh, Skidoo snow machines. So somehow I got uh, my hands on some promotional materials uh, listing all the different models that they had and all the different uh, special features that each one had. And I, I read through that thing diligently. I looked at them all and I, I picked out my favorite one. And the Skidoo Summit was the one. If I could get any snow machine in the world, this is the one I would get. And, and this is what I would do. With that. I sort of made up a story. And I was, I was telling my, my dad and his friend about it. And, you know, I, would, I would take it behind my house and go on the trails and everything. And there's a couple spots where I know there's a field that, that has fresh powder. I'd go on that and just ride it all day long. And my dad's friend, um, who understands snow machines quite a bit, listened for a while, and then when I was done, he quietly said, that would be a waste of that snow machine. And of course, I'm devastated, because this is the one that I really want. That's Skidoo Summit. It's a beautiful snow machine. But the thing is, he's right. That snow machine is made to go into the mountains. It's not made to go through trails and go on little powder and stuff like that. It's made to go up the rocky mountains. It's called a summit for a reason. It's called a summit because it's meant for the high mountains. The best I could think of for it was to kind of piddle along in trails and stuff like that, but that would be a total waste of what it was made for. It was made to go high up into the mountains and and take people as high as, as they can go on a snow machine. I think we do the same thing when we think about life after death. I think we tend to envision it as a, as a really boring place, if we're honest, where we kind of have halos and wings and we're playing harps on clouds. And that just doesn't sound like something that stirs the souls of at least most of us. But that's because you weren't created for that. You weren't created to be a disembodied harp player for eternity. You were created to live in God's kingdom. You were created to live in, in the new creation, the place where God is king, where his rule has no opponents, where sin and darkness and death are never to be found anymore. And that's why Paul is saying in the letter to the Romans that the creation is longing for that day. This is what he says in, in Romans 8. He's talking about the, the glorious future that we have. He says, Creation waits in eager anticipation, eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. He's saying creation is longing for the day when Christ restores all things. This is looking forward to a real new creation in the real world, the restoration of all things. And he goes on to say that we too, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, are, are longing for that day. It's an eager anticipation, not because we're floating around spirits, but because it's the real world that God has meant us for. We were created for this. So you and I and creation, everything else inwardly knows that this world that we live in is not as it should be. Death is our enemy. Things are not supposed to be this hard. We were created to live in God's presence and live under his blessing forever. And that's why we're so frustrated But Paul is saying, you long for this because it's going to happen. God has put this in your hearts and the Spirit is testifying to the truth of it. And the resurrection is the guarantee of it that you will be raised. You have a new body. You will be able to live in God's kingdom. This more that you are longing for is something you will get to experience because you will be raised with Christ when he comes to restore all things. That is the hope that we have for the future. Now, one more note before we leave this first section on why death as uh, resurrection as the defeat of death is important for us. You have to belong to Christ for this to be good news to you. 
I mean, you can read verse 22 and get the wrong impression. It says, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And you can get the impression, well, everyone's part of God's creation. Everyone goes to heaven. But we have to read verse 23. You have to continue with what he's saying to understand. He says, each in, uh, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. In other words, the crucial piece is actually belonging to Jesus. The crucial piece in this that makes this good news for us is if we are in Christ. I mean, all of us are in Adam. We are humans who, like our father Adam, choose to rebel against God, and so we live in this world of death. We live in rebellion against God. But Jesus opens up a new possibility, the possibility to be in Christ. If we put our faith and our trust in him, we become part of his new creation. We belong to the kingdom of God. So if you are in Christ, you will be raised from death to life like he was when he returns. But if you're not in Christ, that means that you're still in Adam, which means you're still under the reign of death. Being in Christ is absolutely crucial here for this to be good news for you. Okay, so the big truth here that we're looking at, resurrection is the defeat of death. What this means for you and I is that if we are in Jesus, we are part of God's new creation. We will get to experience the new creation, the place where God reigns unopposed as we were created and meant to be. Those who belong to Jesus will be raised from death to life in the end when he returns. That's why the the resurrection as defeat of death is good news for us. Now let's move to the perspective to the perspective of God. What does resurrection as the defeat of death mean from God's perspective? Look at verses 23 to 26 with me. But each in turn, Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. And then the end will come when he, Christ, hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. So for us, as we've seen, resurrection is the defeat of death, which means that we will be raised from death to life like Jesus was when he returns. For God, resurrection likewise is the defeat of death, which means that God has defeated all of his enemies fully and finally. See, right now, there are places where God's reign is not acknowledged. There are people who do not worship God. There are millions of people today around the world who do not worship God and acknowledge him. I don't have to tell you that sin and darkness and death are still very present realities. This is what mars our existence in this world. It's what makes us long for something more. There are still people who oppose God's good rule today. But this is pointing to the end and saying this is not always going to be true. In the end, there will be no enemies of God left standing, not even death. So in verse 24, it's saying Jesus will, will abolish, he'll put an end to every other kingdom, every other rule, every other authority, every other dominion. Anything that's opposed to the rule of God is going to be done, abolished, ended. And likewise, in verse, 20, verse 25, God is putting all enemies under the feet of Christ. Christ will reign unopposed as king. 
This concept of of, uh, God putting the enemies under Christ's feet is taken from two different Psalms, Psalm 8 and Psalm 110. The first one, Psalm 8, referring to God exalting humans over the created order. And in Psalm 110, it's a messianic psalm. It's referring to God destroying the enemies of Israel through a king like David, an idealized king, which by the way, again, means it's about the Messiah, which means that it's about Jesus. So this is about God putting all enemies under the feet of Jesus. And we know that this has substantially happened. We know that Jesus has triumphed over the powers of sin and darkness and death because he died on a cross and the powers of sin have been defeated. The powers of darkness have been decisively defeated. They've been mortally wounded. There's nothing they can do to oppose God substantially anymore. And yet, you know from living in the real world that they're still present. Death is still a very real threat to us. Paul's saying that's not always going to be true. Death is the final enemy, he says in verse 26, and it will be defeated when Christ returns in the end and the, and the dead are raised in him. In the end, even death will be defeated. So this is what's so great about resurrection. It means that the last enemy is defeated and done, and God is the unopposed ruler of everything. As I was thinking about this, this huge concept uh, this week, that, that God finally has no opposition. No one can stand against him. There's, there's nothing beyond his rule and beyond his realm, and everyone will acknowledge it. I was thinking about this huge concept, and, and a kind of cheesy, I guess, thought came to mind. It was a, a scene from uh, the, the animated film, The Lion King, uh, where Mufasa, the king lion, is kind of sitting there on his rock, looking at his whole kingdom, and, and he's talking to his young son Simba, and he's saying, this is, this is our reign. Everything that the light touches is part of our kingdom. And at first, of course, the, the young lion is saying, wow, that's, that's really impressive. That's a, that's a big territory. But then he notices something off in the distance. He says, well, what about that shadowy place over there? And his father says, well, that's beyond our borders. You must never go there. In other words, there's a limit to their kingdom. There's the sphere where they are king, and then there's a place outside of that where they're not king. Without resurrection, you might think that's true of God's kingdom too. Because right now you see that death is still opposed to God. Sin is still there. Darkness is still there. There are still enemies of God that threaten our existence. But when Christ returns, every enemy is going to be defeated forever, even death. So that there's no opposition to God's rule. There's no part in the whole cosmos where you can say, well, God's not king there. Or, or that's a force that's opposed to God and his will. No, there's none of that left. Every enemy, even death itself, has been abolished and wiped out forever. A kingdom without borders, a kingdom without qualifications. God being all in all. And that's our hope. This is what we're looking forward to in the end. Christ returns and all of God's enemies are forever defeated and gone. And then it says, Christ will hand over then his kingdom to God the Father. This is what he says in verses 27 and 28. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it's clear this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now that might seem a bit unusual or a bit confusing to us because we worship God we rightly uh, through Jesus. We rightly exalt Jesus. We exalt him as our king. And this might make it look like, well, well Christ maybe isn't king forever then. If, if he's handing over the kingdom of the Father and he's subjected to God the Father, well, what does that mean about him? 
Well, the point is that Christ is not someone who is setting himself up as a king in opposition to God or in competition to God. It's, it's more like Christ is, is like a general who goes out to battle for the king to, to go out into the, the kingdom and squash any rebellion that's left. And that's what Jesus is doing now. He's squashing all rebellion. All enemies are putting put under his feet. And when that's true, then God is all in all. Don't miss the outcome there at the end of verse 28, so that God may be all in all. That's what this whole thing is about. It's about Christ coming and, and restoring God's rule in all of the world. No enemy is defeated anymore where Christ is acknowledged as king. So it's right for us to exalt and to worship Christ. It's right for us to call him king because when Christ is king, that means God is all in all. God is rightly worshipped and rightly exalted through his son, Jesus. So let's get back to the big idea here. Resurrection is the defeat of death. This is huge. I want you to mull this over this week. What does this mean for me and for my life? What does this mean for God? That resurrection is really the defeat of death. It means that we'll be raised with Jesus. We'll be part of God's new creation. It means that there are no enemies of God left standing. Resurrection demonstrates that God wins decisively. And this is really good news because where God is victorious, where he reigns as king, you and I get to live as we were created to live. We were designed for a life where God is on the throne and we are his creatures worshiping him and relying on him for everything. And we will get to experience that and the resurrection is the guarantee that we get to experience it. All of the frustration will be answered by God's new creation which is guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus. So what do we do with this? I think the first thing is to, to dwell on it, to think about it, to, to foster that longing for something more so that we're actually, like Paul says, eagerly anticipating what will happen when Christ returns again. We take up the prayer that, that's at the very end of the Bible, come Lord Jesus, because this is our hope that Christ will return and in the end all things will be made right. We who die will be raised to new life and be able to experience God's new kingdom. So foster an eager anticipation and a joy over what Christ will accomplish at the end that's guaranteed in the resurrection. I think the other part of it is, is praying for this. I mentioned that the prayer at the end of the Bible, come Lord Jesus. But Jesus actually gives us words to pray. As he teaches his disciples, he teaches them the Lord's Prayer, which actually, if you look at it, it's a prayer that's exactly in line with the sure hope that is won and affected by Jesus' resurrection. So he invites us to pray to the Father, and he is our Father through Jesus because we are reconciled to him. We become his children through Jesus. So, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In other words, may your name be proclaimed holy everywhere. It's, it's too limited in scope now. Too many people are saying God is not holy. They're not worshiping rightly. So may your name be hallowed. May it be holy across the whole world. May your kingdom come. We've talked about kingdom, right? Kingdom is the place where God is king. May that happen here. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, we, want to, we long to experience your new creation, the place where you are king, and we get to experience the world as you intended it to be experienced. We pray for our daily bread because we're still living here in the, in the real world. We, we ask for God's provision day after day after day. We ask for God to forgive our debts, forgive our sins, because we are still part of the sin and darkness of the world. We still need to be forgiven and to become a forgiving people. So we pray for that too. 
And we pray that God would lead us not from temptation, but, but lead us away from the evil one. Deliver us from evil because the powers of darkness are still strong. The powers of death are still strong against us. There still are great enemies. So we're praying for God to send his spirit so that we can live in light of the resurrection, live in light of this new creation. And in the end, we confess that God's is the kingdom and the power and the glory for all time, forever and ever, without end. So long for this new creation. Foster in your hearts a longing for, for living in God's kingdom, being part of the new life, the new creation that's found in him. And then pray for it. Pray for God to be active according to his word, according to his will, and pray that you too, your hearts would be like his and that you would be part of his great work. This is what we do with the resurrection. This is a huge thing. Resurrection means that death is defeated forever. So as we close here, I I want to to pray the Lord's Prayer. And if you know it, you can pray it with me. You don't have to do it if you don't want to, but that's fine. Um, But let's, let's close by praying in line with what Jesus has taught us to pray. Join me, if you will. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.